Harvard Divinity School. Leading Toward Justice, Intersections of Religion, Ethics, and Government, October 3rd, 2022. Um, hello again, my name is Chandra Muhammad, and I'm the Associate Director for Alumni Relations at Harvard Divinity School. Uh, we are so glad uh, that many of you could join us for today's webinar, Leading Toward Justice, Intersections of Religion, Ethics, and Government. We have more than 170 people registered to join us today for this discussion. Um, with that, I am very excited to introduce our moderator for today's discussion, Susie Hayward. Um, Susie is the Associate Director for the Religious Literacy and the Professions in Initiative, um, a component of religion and public life at HDS that uh, fosters curricular and programmatic activity to advance religious literacy across a wide range of professional fields of public engagement. Susie's also one of our stellar leaders in the alumnix community, um, great, Susie, we're honored to have you lead today's discussion. So I'll turn it over to you to introduce the panelists. Thank you, Chandra. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. It's really great to see uh, so many interested in this topic and in this series that we've been having with alumnics who are working in secular defined fields and sharing with us how they bring their religious studies degree and leverage them in those fields in order to advance justice. That is actually a, a central component to the Religious Literacy and Professions Initiative that's part of religion and public life that I work with and for, as Chandra mentioned. Um, we also work with current students here at Harvard Divinity School who are studying religion in preparation for going into professions like organizing, media, humanitarianism, or as is our focus today, government and public policymaking. We know that religion inevitably intersects with government and governance systems generally, particularly in its normative operations, and that religion intersects in particular with a range of policy issues. So as religion scholars, um, those of us who are gathered here today as religion scholars and us at HDS, we could probably make a case for religion um, being in, involved in pretty much every issue along the policy gamut. We can find religion everywhere. Um, but certainly when it comes to policy, policy issues like immigration, criminal justice, um, women's and gender rights, climate and land management, economic policies, I think many of us can see clear religious dimensions. These religious dimensions play out in how policies are shaped. Um, for example, being shaped by particular religious interests of certain groups or in how, how policies affect different religious communities. Or if we wanna think even more deeply about some of the embedded or implicit ways um, in which religion shapes policy, how religious worldviews shape how we even understand these issues. And so the policy issue, the policy solutions that we develop for them. I'm grateful to have four wonderful fellow HDS alumnics with me today who have worked um, or are currently working in government spaces so that they can speak a bit more about how the study of religion can be leveraged in the work of policymaking or in providing services through government institutions in order to advance just peace. Among us, uh, we have an Illinois State Senator, Jackie Collins, a Canadian parliamentarian, Gary Burrell, a US Foreign Service Officer, now based in Saudi Arabia, Yusra Ghazi, and a former Associate Director of Corrections in Oregon State, Kelly Ratz. 
They are all extraordinary and they have wonderful bio data that you can find by clicking the links that will be put in the chat box shortly if they're not already there um, that link to their fuller bios. But I think what can sometimes be even more interesting than reading that bio data is um, to hear from individuals about what they do in their current positions. So I'd like to start with that by asking each of the four panelists um, to share what it is you do in your day job in government spaces. So Gary, if I could start with you, please. Uh, sure, thanks. I, I'm a, an ordained minister of the United Church of Canada, but for the last dozen years or so, I've been a member of the Legislative Assembly of the province of Nova Scotia in Canada, uh, an MLA as we call it, and MLAs are, I guess, um, like a state representative uh, in the U.S., something of that sort. Um, in Nova Scotia, in our legislature, we have 55 uh, seats. The party that I come from holds six of those. I belong to the New Democratic Party, which is uh, a, a party of social justice and social change, a democratic socialist party. Uh, and our uh, our caucus at the moment in the Nova Scotia legislature is a little bit like this uh, panel. We have six uh, MLAs. I'm the only man. Uh, and uh, in fact, we have um, the highest proportion of women and gender diverse people of any caucus uh, in any Canadian jurisdiction in all of Canada's history. So it's all it's very exciting. And so that's uh, the context in which I work. Great. Thank you, Gary. Jackie, what do you do and how did you get there? Well, thank you, first of all, for me to participate. It's an honor to participate in the webinar today. I am State Senator Jacqueline Collins, and I represent the 16th Legislative District of Illinois, and I serve over 213,000 constituents uh, in communities uh, represented on the south side of Chicago, as well as citizens in both the suburban and uh, rural areas in Illinois. So I majored in journalism at Northwestern University and worked some 20 years at CBS TV uh, in Chicago. But while working in the media, I became very disillusioned with how the media appeared to sensationalize, well, prioritize sensationalism and moved away uh, from educating and informing the public. So in my opinion, uh, it failed in its mission to shine a light in the darkness. And we know that the masthead of the Washington Post reads, democracy dies in darkness. So uh, when I decided to leave CBS, it was only natural that I would seek admission to Harvard uh, Divinity School and later the Kennedy School. Uh, coming of age in the 60s, my role models were John and Robert Kennedy and uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So these men, I thought, articulated a rhetoric of hope and possibility, and they inspired me and really gave birth to my passion for social justice. So at HDS, uh, I was fortunate and grateful uh, to study the ethical and religious uh, thought of Dr. King with Professor uh, Preston Williams. So uh, it was in my last semester uh, at Harvard uh, in 2002 uh, that I received a call from my pastor, Father Michael Flager of St. Sabina in Chicago, and he was asking me to return to Chicago and run uh, for a Senate seat that was newly created in the 2000 census. So, you know, I accepted the challenge um, and won my election in 2002. 
and um, took my seat in 2003. And so I've served in Illinois General Assembly for uh, close to 20 years. Um, so, but I will be transitioning uh, out of the seat uh, in uh, next year in 2023. Great, Jackie, thank you for that. And we wish you all the best as you make those transitions. And we'll look forward to seeing where you're, where you're headed next. So we have a couple elected officials who are with us today, and then we have a couple folks who have worked within the administration um, in different government agencies or bureaucracies. So Yusra, if you could share with us where you are and how you got there, please. Yes, hi, I'm happy to share. Um, I am currently in Saudi Arabia working as a US Foreign Service Officer for the US Department of State. Um, it's my second tour. My last tour was in London. And you know, I got started on this career um, a while ago. I, I grew up in uh, the Chicago area and spent a lot of my early career working for Interfaith America, now previously known as Interfaith Youth Corps. And so um, had a very um, particular take on the role of religion and public life and the ways that religiously diverse communities can and should be working together in the world. Um, and that got me wanting to study this uh, academically um, and so that is how I ended up uh, applying to study at HDS. I had already worked, on, uh, some of you may be familiar with President Obama's Interfaith Campus Challenge, where he tried to get uh, and succeeded in getting lots of higher education institutions to promote interfaith cooperation across the country. And that was my first um, entry point to thinking about the role that government agencies play in not just understanding religion and public life, but also promoting interreligious cooperation and working hand in hand with religious actors. And so I, I, um, I studied a number of these types of theories and, um, um, you know, this is a growing field looking at religion and public life, religion and politics. So I got to study this at HDS. And during that time, because of the many courses that were not many, but a handful of courses that were cross-listed with the Kennedy School of Government, I was able to um, learn more about this topic from various perspectives and landed a fellowship over the summer through the Rappaport Institute at the mayor's office in Boston. And uh, I never thought, I never ever thought I would work in government. I was like, down with the man, you know? But here I was working uh, as a faith-based policy fellow at the Mayor Marty Walsh's Office for Immigrant Advancement. And that got me thinking even more about what this means and then looking at it at a macro scale. Um, it was through a Harvard alumnus that I landed a fellowship at the US Department of State, uh, which I ended up doing for a year. And that grew into a longer term career um, working in offices that look at religion and global affairs and also other types of um, cooperation and understanding built globally across communities. And along the way, I ended up applying for the US Foreign Service and the rest is history. Thanks, Yusra. And of course, when you were one of the offices that you were working in at the State Department, Religion and Global Affairs was, was led at the time by another HDS alum, Sean Casey. Kelly, how about you? Can you share with us, please? Sure, I'm just finishing a 15 year career with the Oregon Department of Corrections, kind of most um, recent position as an assistant director uh, over correctional services. So kind of all the care and programming for folks in custody. Um, but my career in prison systems, kind of my interest in that started when I was at HDS at a um, 
volunteer kind of activities fair, I picked up a trifold uh, flyer about Partakers, the mentoring program for people pursuing their higher ed degrees. Um, and that led to some great experiences working with a group of Quakers and people in custody who are leading alternatives to violence programs in Massachusetts prisons. And so I um, was hooked kind of into the criminal justice system, both with uh, just incredible curiosity and incredible uh, frustration and anger. And so I, um, that's kind of where that captured me. When I left HDS, I went um, and got a massage therapy degree. I needed to go from kind of this uh, corporal space to, or a cerebral space to a more corporal space. And during that time worked with some women whose uh, children, children whose moms were in prison. Um, that led me to be a chaplain in the prison system. And then again, for the last 15 years, I've worked Oregon Department of Corrections and I'm now um, kind of on to a new career, but uh, that's my pathway, Susan. Great, thank you, Kelly, and to all of us for sharing your careers, paths. Um, I wonder now if we could shift to talking a little bit about how your your study of religion at Harvard shaped how you approached your work in government service. Um, and before I'm gonna start with you, Jackie, um, but before we do that, I also just wanna remind folks who've joined us since we started to please throw uh, an introduction into the chat box so we can see who's here. Thank you, Jackie. Well, thank you. I think my HDS studies uh, enabled me to explore uh, the writings, ideas, and primary concepts of Dr. King as a theologian a minister and civil rights advocate uh, pursuing justice. Um, within the academic framework, I was introduced to Dr. King's vision for a just society, uh, a, a society he called the beloved community, right? A society where you recognize the intrinsic value of every individual and work for the common good. So it was a place where poverty, hunger, and homelessness uh, would have no place uh, in a just society. So I learned that Dr. King believed that justice uh, was the birthright of every human being uh, in a beloved community. So thus my HDS experience, I think offered me um, a way of thinking, uh, of being and seeing in the world. Uh, the knowledge of Dr. King's moral action, you know, grounded in his theological learning, provided me with the blueprint of how faith and faith in God sometimes compels you uh, or uh, requires you uh, to be politically engaged. Uh, my classmates, my classmates were Jewish, uh, South Korean Christians, uh, and even agnostics. <laughs> and so my HDS experience and encounters uh, showed me how you can be loyal to your own religious tradition. Um, and yet show reverence and express reverence uh, for different traditions. So uh, as a Catholic, which I am, uh, pursuing a deeper understanding of justice, I was only aware of the Black Catholic, I'm sorry, I was only aware of the Black church tradition of fighting uh, for social justice. Yet it was only at HDS that I was introduced to the rich heritage of Catholic social teaching, you know, and I think Catholic social teaching is one of the best kept secrets of the Catholic Church. <laughs> so I am grateful uh, for HDS because when I came to HDS, uh, Father Brian Hare was the acting dean. So I was grateful for HDS and helping me see the intersection 
and the interrelatedness uh, amongst all religious traditions uh, that seek a more just world. Thank you, Jackie. I sometimes say that it's uh, at HDS, I'm appreciative of not just the substance of what I've learned, or I'm certainly appreciative of that in the same way you're appreciative of having been able to do deep study of Martin Luther King and other exemplary leaders. But more importantly, like how it taught me to think and move in the world. So I connect with what you just said and also about the diversity of the of the student body at HDS being a microcosm of the world that you were then going into and developing policies in response to and to hopefully help further justice within. Yusra. Thank you. I um, It's really hard for me to answer this question because there are so many elements of my time at HDS that feeds into what I do today and the places that my career led me to over the years since graduation. Uh, but the first things that came to mind were, um, I mean, beyond the, the coursework and the reading in the classroom, um, I really benefited immensely from the network of peers and alumni at HDS that were there around the time that I was. And you, know, you mentioned this, Susie, it was um, uh, Sean Casey, an alumnus from Harvard Divinity School, who I practically stalked uh, every time he came to campus for a talk in order to try to get a position in his office at the uh, Department of State after he was appointed Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs by Secretary Perry. Um, and it was um, a number of other alumni and peers that I continued to stay in touch with and engage in my work at the department and outside the department um, after moving to Washington, DC. And so, um, and every day I randomly bump into HDS alumni. It's just a wonderful community, uh, uh, really rich in resources and very giving of their, um, you know, intellect and their time uh, and their curiosity about religion and public life. So um, there, the, the network and the peers was a big piece. The second thing that I wanted to mention is the many scholar practitioners. So uh, um, we've already mentioned Brian Herrer, uh, but individuals like, Jocelyn Cesari, who was teaching classes that were cross-listed with the Kennedy School and HDS, uh, Professor Diane Moore, Professor Diana Eck. A lot of the coursework that I took with them was really practical. It was about um, looking at case studies, thinking about the role of religious literacy and how important it is um, in the working world, um, how, how we can think about lived religion um, outside of academia as we go off into our careers. And I definitely took a lot of those teachings, a lot of those resources with me to the point that I was calling them up even after uh, joining the State Department to say, hey, please sit on this advisory board. I need you to share your wisdom with my colleagues. So in many, many, many ways, my time at HDS was um, incredibly uh, fruitful and continued to um, continue to be fruitful in the years afterwards as I developed my career in government. Thank you, Yusra. Yeah, that uh, network of HDS alumnix is also one that we're building on here with the Religion and Public Life program and has been really fruitful for our students to be able to connect with alumnix who, like you say, are kind of everywhere <laughs> in different fields. Kelly, can you share a bit about how your study of religion at Harvard informed your approach? to sure. decision-making and policy-making and the Department of Corrections? Yeah, um, like Yusra and probably others, Jackie, I too uh, took the opportunity to dabble across um, the Harvard Graduate School course offerings. And so um, one of the places that I went, I took a couple courses at the business school on uh, social enterprise. And uh, 
the classes were wonderful. Um, I really enjoyed them. And both of them reassured for me that I was enrolled on the right side of the river. Um, and so one of the examples uh, one day in a course that we were taking uh, about a nonprofit organization um, was, you know, each case study, the nonprofit organization had a um, kind of base belief, a theory of change. And I unknowingly raised my hand boldly and wanted to question the theory of change of that organization. And uh, the professor quickly corrected me that, hey, you know, we don't in these courses uh, question the theory of change. And so for me, one of the things that HDS um, provided for me was this assurance that no, um, we question the theory of change, right? And so I uh, carried that into my career uh, in the criminal justice system, the Department of Corrections. Um, and one of the ways that that kind of showed up uh, really kind of unexpected and profoundly for me was um, I went into the criminal justice system to work for people in custody, for their families and for their children. Um, and when I worked at the penitentiary as a chaplain, we started a restorative justice group uh, with men in custody, um, members of the community, uh, and employees. And so one of the things when you're in prison, you don't often get the opportunity to address, you know, those folks that you've directly harmed through your crime. But the premise of the group is that we could address the harm within the community of the penitentiary. And so we read uh, Philip Zimbardo's book, The Lucifer Effect, um, that talks in detail about the 1971 Stanford Prison Project. And one of the things that the men really kind of gifted for me in that questioning my base assumption of why I was in prison um, was this awareness, this aha about uh, the harm, the psychological trickery, if you will, of what it means to be an employee of the Department of Corrections, in particular, um, a correctional officer. And so that kind of, you know, MLK's notion that we're all kind of sh the shared fabric, right? That our, we have the shared destiny um, really shifted my role in kind of the last uh, several years that I've spent with the Department of Corrections from directly working on behalf of people in custody um, to looking at employee wellness. And so that's something I'll talk a little bit more about as we go. That's great. Thank you, Kelly. Yeah, the, the religious studies um, uh, approach that has really benefited me is that 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 question everything <laughs> like bring sort of deep critical analysis to all of the presumed um, systems and processes of of doing things as well as that holistic understanding of of how change is necessary um, focusing on the the spiritual and the whole of the self and systems as well gary well thanks you know i uh i, I didn't come to HDS to uh, uh, straighten out my thinking so much about social and economic justice. I had already been an organizer, community organizer and uh, writer on the left uh, for some years before I went to theological school. But I, but I did come with a sense of ur urgent need uh, to, to clarify my own thinking as a Christian socialist um, about what was, what's the real theoretical, the real theological bedrock of this position. What, what does it really mean uh, to be a Christian socialist? And, uh, and to, to clarify my uh, sense of the vision and the mission that that involves. And I, I've, uh, uh, this, that was over 30 years ago. And uh, this is this has made a tremendous difference to me um, uh, as a, a progressive politician, 
you know, one of the one of the elements that I think if you ask many people what's missing in our current politics, they, they often will say, um, well, vision, a bigger picture, some sense of uh, what this is all for, a commanding sense of purpose. Uh, I, I, I had this marvelous opportunity for uh, those couple of years to just buckle down and straighten out for myself, what is it that I think? Uh, and uh, I, I I, uh, you know, in politics, there's no shortage of people uh, who uh, want to uh, guide you about what you think. Uh, and it's immensely helpful to have a, a, a very solid foundation of uh, a sense of why it is you're there and what it is you think you're pushing for. And I think that theological education has been very helpful to me in that respect. I appreciate that, that deep grounding and the time that you get to really craft the vision and ground yourself in it before going out into the world where there will be many, um, many temptations to stray from your groundedness and, and your commitments. So thank you, Gary, for that. Um, before I turn to the third question, I just want to invite all of those who are with us, if you have questions for the panelists, to please throw them into the chat box and we'll have time to get to them after the next couple questions. If it's for a particular panelist, please note that in the chat box. Um, okay, for the third question, I'm curious if we can give um, a little bit more illustration of what we were just talking about. So if you have an anecdote or an example of some sort of when your training in religious studies, your religious literacy, helped you with formulating a, a policy response or responding to a particular crisis or need in your position in government. So Yusra, if I can begin with you, please. Yes. Um, so, you know, when, before I, uh, I mentioned that I worked at Interfaith America and was helping uh, with President Obama's Interfaith uh, Campus Challenge Program. Um, at that point, in part of my studies at HDS were about looking at the growth of faith-based offices at government agencies at uh, state and uh, at, at the state level and at federal agencies. Um, and so like his predecessor, um, President Obama also appointed individuals to lead these faith-based office for the Department of Commerce or for um, whatever other agencies. I went to a particular government agencies event um, while I was, I was still outside government and uh, they decided to open up the event with a benediction and close it with a prayer where they were the, the person in charge of that agency invoked Jesus and other kind of very heavily Christian themes. And as a Muslim practitioner, you know, community organizer, interfaith worker, I felt super excluded and kind of like, hey, you know, I studied religion for my undergrad and I know enough to know that this is probably not appropriate. And it really made me want to think like, um, the story that I've been told about the division of um, faith and public life or uh, religion and government, what's it really about? And uh, what are the rules we should be following as we enter into this new world of hyperactive engagement between government agencies and faith communities? So um, I ended up deciding to go to HDS. And when I started my uh, fellowship at the mayor's office in Boston, within my first week, I was at a community event. I think it was organized by an Irish American uh, organization, contacted the mayor's office and somebody pulled me aside and said, so you're the faith-based policy fellow. Do you go around hosting prayer circles? Like what's your deal? And I realized over the years that there is so much that people assume that religion means or should mean. It's based on the stories we're told about our constitution, about the first amendment, about founding fathers, 
uh, about what's okay in a school and what's not okay in a school. And a lot of my experiences at HDS helped me kind of dissect these assumptions and better understand from various lenses um, how religion can and maybe should be talked about uh, within public schools, within government agencies, um, and to, to understand at a deeper level. So all that to say, when I joined the State Department, I had the, the blessing and the privilege of getting to work at the Office of Religion and Global Affairs, where we um, conducted, and Susie, you were there, a number of trainings um, when you were at USIP on um, religion and global affairs, religion and uh, government um, engagement. And a lot of it just involved talking to foreign policy practitioners about the basics, breaking down their assumptions about the First Amendment, things they couldn't do, trying to open up people's eyes to say, hey, you can talk about um, more than Ramadan with ex-Muslim community, you can talk about anti-corruption efforts, you can talk about criminal justice, you can talk about these themes that are really important to diverse communities and connected to their deeply held values and still be within the parameters of law and within the First Amendment parameters. So um, I took a lot from some of the professors I already mentioned in the kind of curriculum and training I developed as a trainer within that office um, and continue to do that type of education in my day to day, even now that I'm not in a religion focused job. That's great. Thank you, Yusran. Yeah, thanks for outing me too as a former quasi-governmental. So a lot of what you folks are saying resonates quite deeply for me as well. Kelly, how about you? Can you give us an example. Yeah, it kind of as I alluded to before in the last question, you know, one of the things midway through my career um, that became a shift for me in my energy direction and, and really um, I think because of almost receiving permission from that group of incredible men at the penitentiary um, involved in that restorative justice process was this you know, this shared single garment of destiny that we have in this appreciation that this system that we are in harms in all directions. Um, and so, you know, my career shift kind of took off um, to focusing on employee wellness and you may or may not be aware um, that the our first responder community, I mean, that that is a public health crisis in and of itself um, with their social, emotional, physical outcomes. Um, for, you know, the career choices that they've made. And so one of the things that I did um, was in that focus on employee wellness and can we move the dial on employee well-being was I partnered with um, the amazing Fleet Mall with the Center for Mindfulness and Corrections. And we spent a lot of time teaching correctional employees uh, to breathe, uh, to be mindful, um, to kind of take ownership over their own physiology, their nervous systems, things like that. And so, you know, one of the things and, you know, this may cause whatever degree of reaction, but I, you know, I think we were particularly proud when we thought we'd led these uh, three-day silent mindfulness retreats for corrections employees that the correction system paid for, paid time for these folks to participate. Um, and as we were breathing, you know, we, we had folks who had their concealed carry strapped on them. And, you know, so it was just like, okay, can we breathe you into a space of safety, you know, where you can evolve, um, you know, in these understandings. And so that, that became kind of, you know, an incredible place for me, like, why is this system so sticky, right, um, from an HDS standpoint, and, and I don't think that I would have understood or been able to impact the system and its stickiness had I not been a part of it. And I think that investment just to kind of close out one of the things that, um, you know, at the end of my career with bittersweet kind of quality is 
that focus on employees, that understanding of stickiness kind of allowed me, if you will, to kind of midwife the closure of three prisons. So at the end of our current governor's term last year, she decided to close three prisons. And so, you know, HDS equipped me to understand how do you bring this system to the history books and to love and care for incredible public servants in those prison systems and use tools that are different than the tools that created this punitive system. So how do you love a prison in a very rural remote area that holds that economy together um, into closure? And so I think um, that kind of complexity and again, heading on a path that I wouldn't have anticipated in my career, um, it was the HDS tools that helped me to do that. So. That's fantastic, Kelly. So just thinking about how all of these policies and systems have humans <laughs> at their heart of them. And so putting that that human um, need and perspective in the midst of it and thinking about how to make decisions that don't reproduce violence um, wittingly or unwittingly. Gary, over to you. Do you have an example for us? Well, I, I think that uh, my own theological education has helped me a lot to um, think about and provide some leadership in a very important part of political work, which is uh, failure and loss. Uh, I think about uh, uh, Sharon Welch was a big influence on my thinking, feminist ethicist at uh, HDS when I was there. She used to talk about um, how in the 80s, she had been involved in the anti-nuclear movement at a time when the movement was really going through some struggles and decline and people were not being attracted to rallies and meetings and so on. And she noticed uh, that um, at the meetings where she was, the, 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 everyone had gone away except those who, whose background to a great extent had come out of the African-American church. And then she reflected on that and said that it, 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 it said to her that, the, that these were people who had come out of a formation to this work, um, out of which they did not uh, hyper-focus on individual battles, uh, but rather had, had a larger sense of the, of, of the mission and, and the purpose and the goal by which they thought about the, the worth of their work for social change. Right? I think this, this has always stayed with me. I, I, until recently, was leader of the New Democratic Party in Nova Scotia, um, and I came to be leader in a period of uh, uh, real setbacks uh, for our party and real discouragement for our party. And I, I uh, tried very hard in the years uh, when I was in that position uh, for, to, to help us regain our confidence about uh, what, what was our purpose, what was our mission, what, what, were we, what were we trying to do, and to understand that this was going to include times of, of setback and include times of failure, and that did not diminish in any way the, the integrity or power of our capital P project, and I think that's a way of thinking uh, that uh, much was, has been much configured in me uh, theologically. Wonderful, thank you. That the stuff of ministry and of religion and the the role that it can play in remaining committed to a larger vision is powerful. And Jackie, to you please. So I think it's quite obvious now that uh, my guiding principle and moral compass uh, has been Dr. King. And so uh, his uh, quote that I really uh, formed the bedrock of my all my campaigns and my legislative career is that um, Dr. King's quote that says, I have the audacity to believe that peoples everywhere deserve three meals a day for their bodies, education and culture for their mind, 
dignity, equality, and freedom for their spirits. And so as a woman, as an African-American, and a member of a faith community, uh, the question of how we provide remedy and for whom is never uh, far from my mind. So as a legislator, I seek to provide remedy for those who need it the most. Um, and that is what justice looks like to me. Uh, and for that reason, uh, if you follow my legislative career, you are going to see me tackle uh, a lot of issues that I feel are at the root of inequality here uh, in Illinois. And that's why I relate very closely to what Kelly said is in reference to criminal justice reform, as well as Gary's move uh, in politics to actually bring change. So in the Illinois General Assembly, as an example, I chaired the Financial Institutions Committee, and it was in response to reports of widespread racial inequality in how home loan lending and property appraisals were being conducted that I held a Senate hearing uh, that brought together uh, banking executives, government agencies, and advocates uh, to look at uh, uh, the report uh, and to come to some kind of recognition of reform uh, being needed. So based on the findings of the committee hearing, I introduced the Illinois Predatory Loan Prevention Act. So it was this legislation that capped interest rates for all consumer, auto, and title loans at 36%. Now, that might seem even high, and that might even seem like usury. But prior to this legislation, the APR on average for a payday loan was averaging 267%, uh, thus creating a cycle of debt and generational poverty. And so we know that these high cost payday loans and auto title lenders have stripped billions of dollars from Illinois families in both the black and brown communities. And we're responsible basically for worsening the racial wealth gap. So it was really economic exportation. So I, you know, I say that to say basically my legislative agenda has been framed by the work and witness of Dr. King and his concept of justice. And one of the uh, sayings that I like, I'm called to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I think former Congressman John Lewis referred to it as getting into good trouble and necessary trouble. So I wanna tell my, uh, one of the other issues that I dealt with was I sponsor legislation. Uh, I have a large Muslim uh, group in my district I sponsored something called Charity Without Fear. Right after the 2011 attack, many of our Muslim brothers and sisters who are obligated uh, to uh, send monies back to charitable organizations, they were put on a terrorist list. So I sponsored legislation so they would not be accused of terrorism for making their charity obligations. And also I sponsored legislation to help our Muslim brothers and sisters where they would not be penalized for wearing their religious garb, whether it was the hijab for women and other uh, necessities or the beards, right? So uh, I'm proud to say that my exposure at HDS to, the, to Islam and that religious tradition helped me understand and continue the fight for uh, equity across the board, uh, allowing everyone's religious traditions to be respected. Great, great examples of the commitment to, to justice and the and the commitment to religious pluralism and the intersection of, of justice and uh, religious pluralism and the experience of minorities. Thank you, Jackie. I have one last question for all of you, and then I'm going to turn it over to the questions that have been coming in um, in the chat. And please, anybody else who has a question, please throw it in there. We're going to get to as many as we can. Um, but before we do that, 
I hear from many students here at HDS these days, it probably won't surprise you, but a healthy skepticism about the ability to truly advance justice within systems, specifically systems of power. And, um, and when that system is governmental, given its power agendas, given the bureaucracy of, of government and so on, um, a concern about the ability to, to truly work within those systems in ways that are transformational. So many of you may be familiar with the, with the famous Audre Lorde uh, quote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Um, in that same speech in 1984, she went, she went on to say that, that they, the master's tools, may allow us to temporarily beat him at his own game, but not to create genuine change. So that's what our current students are wrestling with. And I'm sure that this is also something that the four of you have wrestled with as well as, as did I when I was working in DC and even now as I work within this system here at Harvard. So I wonder if you could speak a bit to that, to that question or that challenge. How can you work within the government system to advance justice without inadvertently reproducing or reifying unjust practices and agendas? Can you do so? So Kelly, if I can start with you. Yeah, Susie, I don't think you can. Um, and so, you know, I think about when I go to the grocery store and I am trying my darndest to make the most enlightened, you know, cart of groceries that I have, the least amount of miles traveled, plastic, you know, all those sorts of things like that. There is something um, unavoidable that, you know, this kind of the shared caught up in. And so I've, I have thought a lot about this and this is, you know, in part why I'm at the end of my um, career in corrections. So, but I don't want to dissuade folks um, from doing that. So I just, a couple things that come to my mind on this question. Um, one is I've always personally struggled with some, there's some folks in my business and others that have a tagline on their emails, like to be above reproach. Um, I think um, there is no such thing as being above reproach. I, you know, I think that, that you know, we are prepared and equipped through our faith, through our training um, for incredible complexity, for things that are messy, um, and that that, you know, ability, and then, you know, for most of us, we have some faith background that allows me to say, you know, in my faith tradition, um, you know, do I have a garden to pray in? Um, do I have people to break bread with? Um, do I have ministers of the word who are cross-checking my moral compass every day? Um, and just as that, you know, faith allowed me to kind of come into this work, um, my faith also has showed me when to exit the work. And so I, um, I, I also, I think the other thing for me that is challenging and particularly important in these times is to not exacerbate fault lines. And so if I were to stay kind of cloistered in my ideals, um, I would have missed a great deal of understanding that just as I pray for a system to find a different way out to be dismantled, you know, there are wives and loved ones of the people that I've worked with who pray every day just as fervently for, you know, protect my husband or my wife who's this officer um, as they go and protect uh, the community. And so how do I reconcile my prayers with their prayers? Um, and that I couldn't have understood and contributed to change um, had I not been a part of um, the thing that felt a little scary. So starting right. off. Thank you for that honest reflection, Kelly. 
Gary, you have thoughts on this question? Uh, well, sure. It's a, a very familiar uh, part of the landscape of the social change struggle, this question. I, I don't think of it as, a, as an abstract question, but as a practical matter of you know, how, how do we actually accomplish things that seem as though they can't be accomplished. And so, um, you know, for some people, uh, this, this can only be done, uh, let's say, legislatively, and uh, that's where the real action is, and not in terms of direct action and, and, or and organizing and uh, community mobilization and so on. For other people, it's the opposite, that the real action, the thing that really leads to change, that um, we accomplishing things that we might, people might have thought couldn't be accomplished only comes from mobilizing and organizing and, uh, uh, and, uh, and putting together grassroots power. And, and my experience uh, is, although I spent most of my life on the, or much of my life on the legislative side, I would not say that I think that's the only, uh, the only path to accomplishing a, a great change. Uh, uh, in my own experience, I would say uh, that when there is a convergence of these two worlds of social change, this is where the gas is, this is where the, where the power is. When you have uh, uh, progressive committed uh, legislators uh, on an issue uh, at a time and uh, a context where there is real popular mobilization uh, uh, around that issue, things can be accomplished in the public sphere that people would have thought there was no chance of. Uh, accomplishing. I, I, I can think of many examples uh, here in the politics of Eastern Canada. The one particular recent one is, is rent control. We have recently achieved rent control. Um, a succession of governments had said that under no circumstances would they ever uh, allow rent control. Uh, it, was, it was achieved through the work of a, of a strong militant left-wing caucus arguing for it in the legislature while there were people uh, organizing demonstrations and uh, mobilizing communities in the streets. And this, the convergence of this can create change uh, that nobody would have thought could have been done. That's mm -hmm. how I see it. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. The the work from within and without is necessary for the for the transformations well, to occur. Well, some, somebody called this pushing for non-reformist reforms. I think that's right. Yeah. And appreciate as well that you're coming into like with Yusra, you're coming in with the organizing background as well. So with that, with that experience and perspective. Jackie, anything you want to add to this? Uh yeah, I think there's interconnectivity, connectivity excuse me, the connectedness uh, to both organizing on the outside and the activism, advocating for what you believe in and what you do on the legislative side. So I look at politics at the art of the possibility. And uh, I, I love the saying, and I can't remember who said it, but those closest to the pain need to be closest to the power. And what being a legislator, being in the legislative uh, process means is that I'm able to give justice a seat at the policy table. And so we have many examples of how you work together in the advocacy. We only have to look at the same-sex marriage legislation that recently passed because of the advocacy on the outside and what they were able to connect with legislators who upheld the right 
the same sex marriages. So it takes both working together. So I come out of the 60s. So I naturally assume that uh, inspired by the Kennedys who are actually in the institution, but the Kennedys really defined public service and gave me a, a desire to be a part of that change, to be an agent of change within the system. And so even later for the millennials that came out of the Obama administration or were inspired by his rhetoric of hope and what possibility could be, I think that showed many young people are now running for office based on the influence of the Obama and his rhetoric of hope. So I think it takes both. Uh, we were only able to move civil rights legislation in the Vote, uh, Voting Rights Act of 65 when Johnson uh, told the advocates that I want to do it, but you have to make me do it. And so then they went out and, uh, and put in the momentum and, of the movement that gave birth to the organizing on the outside that pursued or persuaded Johnson to act. So it takes both of us working together. And I don't want the uh, the young students or the uh, students at HDS to be so cynical that they give up their agency of, to be agents of change. Great, thanks Jackie. And Yusra. Thank you, Susie, and thanks everyone. Um, I very much in line with everything that you shared. Now I grew up as a, um, a Muslim of Pakistani origin, you know, in a post 9-11 era and, uh, grew up seeing policies like the Patriot Act made about the communities that I come from and feeling like I didn't have a voice in the in those decisions. Um, and I grew up in a family of organizers and community leaders. And so uh, very early on in my life, I knew the power of showing up, knocking on an elected representative's door and asking for what you need. Um, and this, I was reminded of this at the mayor's office in Boston when early in my time there, a Somali community leader came up, came to our office and said, hey, I see, you know, cops policing my neighborhood all the time, but why don't I see Somali cops? I want you, the mayor and the mayor staff, to work on a program that helps uh, educate my community about how they can join the police force or ways that they can be more included and have jobs and internships at City Hall. Um, and that is the kind of engagement that really inspires me because it took her being um, on that side of the table as a community leader to make some change happen that happened as a result of her outreach. And for someone like me who understood that community and had a voice at the policymaking table to help make certain things happen. And so I got to end up organizing Mayor Walsh's first iftar at City Hall, um, which was protested by fellow Muslims um, who, you know, did not agree with, um, you know, the role that the mayor wanted to play in engaging religious communities. But like Gary was saying, I think it takes all sides and it takes perspectives and it takes, uh, like I, I like to say, it takes Martins and it takes Malcolms. Uh, to, to create a successful movement. And so that's what really inspired me. Um, I'll just really briefly mention that um, while I was waiting to get into the Foreign Service, I uh, uh, directed an organization called America Indivisible that helps Muslim communities and those who perceive to be Muslim connect with uh, local leaders, uh, city, state, and, uh, and county level leaders like Senator Collins um, to do more and to ask more of their representatives. And we ran a study in 2017 and found that across all faith communities, Muslims were the least engaged with their local elected representatives. And that is a disservice to the community. It's a disservice to themselves. And so I would love to see uh, that anger and that activism uh, helping to get more people out there drawing attention to the issues that matter to them, but also perhaps seeing for themselves careers at the policymaking table so that they can work in tandem. 
That's great. Thank you. And, and what you're saying also speaks to, you know, what Kelly was saying earlier too, about just the complexity and the messiness of all of these issues. And part of what a divinity school degree does is help you be less paralyzed in the face of complexity and, um, and try to manage it creatively in order to advance real transformations. So I'm going to turn now to some of the questions that have been coming in here. And I'm going to start with a, a question from uh, Jess Hale. Um, who is speaking as somebody with 30 plus years staffing in public service and is asking about when you have encountered situations where you are having a value conflict with either the administration that you're representing, the party you're representing, or your bosses, and um, how you have dealt strategically with, with those moral conflicts and um, representing or pushing for certain policy priorities. Does anybody want to take that one first? So <clears throat> I'll start first. I think um, I come to the table with a value system that I believe in, and I'm not willing to move off of my value standard. However, this is where I act, ask for the lobbyists, uh, the advocates that support my stance to be the agents on the outside to fight for what I'm trying to do while I'm at the table. It also requires me to talk uh, to people who might not share the same values to explain my position, where I'm coming from, hoping that they listen with an opening ear. I mean, it's so uh, in, in reference to with criminal justice reform, right? Many of my opposition on the opposition side are very law and order directed, right? Guided. I have to show them how that policy has uh, caused disparate treatment and injustice to certain victims of an unjust criminal justice system. And they might not hear me, but I have the facts. Hopefully they'll hear me and make change. But if not, I have those advocates on the outside fighting and uplifting the voices of the incarcerated, the former incarcerated. So, um, and so that's how I deal with it, but I'm not gonna change my value, who I am, because I want to be bring a different value to the table and I'm not willing to move on that. And there's so many people in the system institution that uphold a status quo. I'm not there to uphold a status quo. I'm there to question the status quo because it has not served my constituency well over the years. So I have to bring a different voice that really raises the critical issues about racism, xenophobia. Uh, in society and homophobia in society. So that's why I'm there. And that's the role I have to play while I'm there. Great, thank you, Jackie. Let me let me add um, another question onto here. You can either answer the first question from Jess or um, another question here who, that's coming in from Hunter Limbaugh, um, which is, um, Hunter's curious how all the panelists views on uh, uh, he's curious about the panelist's views on how one effectively separates personal religiosity from public policy in the um, secular world of governing. So how do you manage your own faith commitments, express your own faith commitments, operate out of your own faith commitments in a way that is, um, that is inclusive? I'll just say a quick word about this. Uh, I should have started with this, but my views that I shared in this session do not represent the U.S. Department of State. Um, and so one way that we do it is we use disclaimers, right? Um, separate from that, uh, you know, at least at the State Department, 
there are um, uh, channels that you can use to voice your dissent, like a dissent cable channel where any uh, Oster staff can write in any opposition that they have on whatever values they base it on about uh, existing policies uh, or to advise the, the department about uh, existing policies that they do not agree with or are ill-advised if they think they are ill-advised. So that's one method. But also I recently, just last year, helped found a new Muslim Employees Association with the State Department. And so there is a growing uh, network of diverse employee organizations across federal agencies where these conversations can be had. And these are uh, you know, EEO protected spaces, equal employment uh, uh, office protected spaces where we can have these discussions and talk about our values in a way with without a fear of reprisal or uh, feeling as if um, it's not a safe environment to share these uh, thoughts or to share our values with each other. So there are lots of ways that you can find an opportunity to have these conversations, uh, both formally through such as the dissent channel and then informally with uh, peers and colleagues. Um, so just a couple uh, ideas on what happens within the State Department. Thank you, Issa. Kelly or Gary, do you want to add anything else? We're coming quickly to the hour, so this will have to be something of the last word. I would just quickly, Gary, you know, one of the things for me as a, you know, person, you know, white woman in the correction system, um, trying to bridge some gaps, um, I, for me, I spent inordinate amounts of time eating breakfast and drinking coffee with folks. It was that really that relational capital piece. It was what HDS equipped me to say is that my roots of my faith grow deeper as I engage someone who, you know, same faith or not has differences. And so my roots grow deeper, but, but, you know, it was a lot of relational capital time to say through this relationship to sit down and say, I don't share that same understanding as you. And how do we kind of walk one-on-one -on -one through those kind of conversations? I was the kooky liberal who, you know, led a lot of uh, mindfulness trainings and, you know, so how to stay in relationship to be able to um, have those difficult conversations. That'll turn it over to Gary. Well, I would just say about the, the second question that uh, a person, of course, always has to be uh, humble about their own formation and recognize it as uh, only one stream. Um, in my own political tradition of uh, the New Democratic Party, we there are, there's a, a stream of people who have come from religiously configured socialism, but it's uh, certainly not the majority uh, view in our party. There's a big stream of people who have come out of the women's movement, big people stream of people who have come out of the environmental movement, lots of lots of other streams. So I think we need to cultivate and try to live within this this kind of combined confidence. Uh, in, uh, in, in who we are and what we believe, and at the same time, a humility about uh, one's own formation. Wonderful, thank you, Gary. That's a great message to end on. And I wanna thank all of our panelists. I mean, it, this conversation, we could go for hours, but I really appreciate what you've offered in terms of how the study of religion can help you, both of the diversity of religion that exists in so many of our human societies, but also in asking those, those um, critiquing everything, asking questions about everything and um, embracing the complexity and working through the complexity and how a religious studies degree can help you with that. So thank you for joining us today and I'll hand it back over to Chandra to take us out.
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Susie, uh, Gary, Jackie, Yusra, and Kelly um, for this wonderfully thoughtful dis discussion. Um, and thanks to all of you in the audience for your thought-provoking questions. Um, and the conversation doesn't have to stop here. Um, I hope to see you all in Cambridge this November 4th for HDS Alumni Day. It's going to be a full day of reconnecting with friends, faculty, and the campus. Um, we'll have many classes led by faculty and alumni book fair, lots of opportunities to reconnect, and lots of great food. So please take a look at the agenda on our website. Um, also, if you're interested in learning more about religion and public life, um, there is a link in the chat um, to the RPL website, and we encourage you to check it out. Um, and please continue to stay connected with HDS by checking out our website um, as often as you can and following Harvard Divinity School on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Um, and lastly, as you close out of this webinar, a survey will open in your browser and we'd love to hear your thoughts on this program and what kind of virtual events you'd like to see in the future. So thank you very much and we look forward to connecting with you again soon. Sponsors Religion and Public Life at Harvard Divinity School and HDS Alumni Relations. Copyright 2022. The President and Fellows of Harvard College.